Hey, welcome to Christmas Eve Night School here. If you think this is going to be a Christmas episode, you couldn't be more wrong, because we're going to talk more about Columbine. <laughs> now, famous last words the other day, I'm like, you know, I'm not even that interested in mass shooters or Columbine. I'm not even that interested. And then I proceed to talk about it for over an hour, followed by like three days of reading about it every night. <laughs> you know, for me, though, Columbine is special because it's, it's almost like this dark nostalgia for a period that I lived, you know, I lived that period. That was when I became a teenager, you know, 1998, 1999. So it's, and I can't think of any TV or movies. I can't think of anything in pop culture that actually captures the way things felt in 1999. Because by that time, teen movies had already turned into this irony. It's not like before that they would have accurately captured it. But still, like by the late 90s, movies for teenagers became very self-aware. They became very parody-oriented. I mean, I don't know when the Not Another Teen movie... I don't know when Not Another Teen movie came out. But that's just a good example. That was the mentality of that time. You know, because I'm guessing like when The Breakfast Club came out in the 80s, I doubt that kids in high school were like, that's a totally accurate representation of my high school years. I doubt that people watching 80s teen movies felt like it was accurate, but it wasn't ironic. It wasn't a deliberate parody either. Whereas I feel like the era that I grew up in, the era that I became a teenager Teen movies already had this sense of irony because culture was going that way anyway. You know, culture was kind of already in the process of detaching from itself. So if you were going to make a teen movie, you had to communicate to the audience that, oh, we know this is kind of a silly parody of teens. And we're even going to make movies called Not Another Teen Movie. You know, so I feel like that was the era I lived in. And so as a result, like even what would have been, you know, inaccurate but sincere teen movies didn't really exist. So and I wouldn't want to watch them now anyway. But what we do have is Columbine. Where I think one of the attractions of Columbine, like in terms of reading about it, consuming things about it, is that it really does encapsulate that era you know, in 1999, in addition to being the last year of the frickin' millennium, you know, which, yeah, it's not like we had a, it's not like there was a meltdown like everybody thought. It's not like the entire world melted down and the computers did something crazy at midnight like everybody thought. But that was a transition. I mean, the fact that everybody was preparing for the change, the fact that everybody was like, this is the last year of the millennium. You know, party like it's 1999, the year 2000. It's some, you know, because for decades you had heard like oh, in the year 2000, we're going to be in the future. So even though like the reality was midnight hit and nothing changed, psychologically something was going on. You know, even, you know, dare I say spiritually something was going on. The fact that we were like, wow, this is the end of a thousand year block <laughs> you know, I mean, like we put so much emphasis on years, you know, where it's like, oh, you know, this year is different than last year. And it's like the fact that the entire world 
was saying like, hey, this is the end of a thousand year block of time. And we don't know if something's going to happen at midnight. But I do feel like there was a shift, you know, and I feel like there was a change in culture for one. And uh, when you look at Columbine, well, because here's the thing, like if you look at pictures of, of there's these pictures of the, the senior class, senior class in 1999 at Columbine. And our class, you know, I graduated a few years later, like 2004. But this is something that I guess everybody did in every school across the country, which they would take a, 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 a picture of like the entire senior class sitting in the bleachers. And they would have them take a serious picture and then a goofy picture. And we did this too. They apparently did this in every school across the country where it's like, we're going to take a a serious picture of you and a goofy picture. And for Columbine that year, there's a serious picture. And then the goofy picture, you can see the shooters and their friends up in the corner and they all have sunglasses and hats on and they're pretending to shoot. So it's eerie, you know. The, the killers in the goofy picture are pretending to shoot at the camera. And there's a guy in a neurosis shirt in front of them. I don't think it's one of their friends, but it's just some guy who's into neurosis, which is funny. Probably the coolest guy in their school, you know. There's all these guys who are into like Rams, Ramstein, Ramstein sitting behind him and he's listening to neurosis. He didn't shoot up the school. The guy in the neurosis shirt didn't shoot up to school. But uh, what I was going to say, though, is like looking at this class picture is so interesting because for one, like everybody still looks older than me. This is a phenomenon I've noticed over and over again. I noticed it in my own yearbooks. Like if I go back and look at my old yearbooks, the people who are older than me in school still look older to me now. Like even though they're like 15 years old. And I'm a you know 35-year-old man going on 36 in a few days. When I look at these pictures of like ninth graders, because, because I associate those people with being older than me, and they were the upperclassmen, I can look at pictures of them at age 15. I'm 20 years older than them now. And they still look older than I feel now. <laughs> I don't know what that's... <laughs> I, don't <laughs> I don't know what that says about me mentally. <laughs> The fact that I can look at a bunch of ninth graders and because I was two years younger than them then, they still look older than me now. But I feel like it's kind of a version. Well, first of all, I think their faces were subtly different. This might be a little bit out there for some people, but I think that their faces were subtly different. Because if I look at my parents' yearbook, you know, my parents graduated high school. Both of them graduated in 1966. So if I look at their yearbooks, everybody looks 50 years old. And I think that it's because their faces, their ears, their noses, the structure of their faces look like that generation of people. And you can see that too. Like I'll look at old timey photos of people from like the 1920s and I can see like a 16 year old boy from 1920 and he looks like a 60 year old man to me because it's like people's faces were different. Like, people's features were different. And, I mean, I'm even noticing that now. Like, when I see Zomers and people who are even younger, their faces don't look the same to me. It's not just that they're young. The actual structure of their faces and their features, 
and they kind of look like each other. You know, and maybe I'm completely insane, but I feel like there's something to this where with each generation, people's features change just a little bit. I don't know if it's what they're consuming. I don't know if it's just, I don't know what it is. I don't think you can even measure it. I don't think the science is caught up to this idea. But, uh, you know, for sure, if I look back at a yearbook from decades ago, like my parents' yearbook, everybody looks like an old person. And it's not just the fashion of the time. That's part of it. It's not just the fashion, though. It's, it's just the way their faces are built. I associate them with a generation that I've only known to be parents, that I've only known to be older people. And I feel that way even to a smaller degree, but I still feel that way when I even look at my own yearbooks and I'll look at these upperclassmen, people who are just two years older than I was, and I'm like, they still look old to me. I don't know what that is. Maybe just, I mean, it could be, an, it's definitely an illusion of some kind because I'm looking at freaking 14, 15-year-olds, but it's an interesting illusion and I, and I feel it. <laughs> It's an interesting illusion and I feel it. But looking at the whole point is, is like looking at this picture of these Columbine kids who were the class of 1999, they still look old to me. Like even though they're half my age now, they still look like they're older than me to me. I don't know what that is. I don't know if it's the same phenomenon I'm talking about where... I just associate the way people looked then with, with people who were older than me. I don't know what it is, but it's interesting to look through. And the other thing, like looking at this class picture, like you can really easily identify which type of kid everyone is. Because it's not just the Columbine guys up in the corner who you can tell are the dark kids, the outcasts. It's that you can kind of get that feeling in the entire class picture. But one thing I notice is like there's no blatant wiggers. There's no bla- there's no full-blown wiggers that you can see in there. You know, I'm sure there were already some people talking that way and acting that way. But that was a distinct shift that I think marked the end of the millennium, too. Where, like, after 1999, there was a huge boom as far as people listening to rap. Like, yeah, people already listened to it. It was already popular. Like, when I was in seventh grade in 1998... People were already primarily listening to rap, but that was a that was a huge shift that happened. And I think people who were seniors in high school that year, 1998, 1999, I don't think they had taken on the wigger fashion quite as much as the younger people did. Like being in junior high that year, there were tons of people adopting the whole wigger thing. And like I've said, even popular kids. Even even like popular blonde girls who weren't gangster at all kind of started to talk that way, which was the worst. That's the part of it that I that bothered me the most is that kids who like if somebody was a full blown wigger, an FWB or a, an F an FBW, <laughs> got to get it right, uh, an F, FWB, full wigger blown. Um, no, if somebody was a full-blown wigger, I respected the level of investment they had. Like, I respected that a full-blown wigger decided to basically become this mean clown. This tough clown. Because that's what they were. They were like tough clowns. 
even if they weren't actually tough, they, they tried to act that way. And the level of investment into this ridiculous way of living, it's almost impressive to me. What bothered me was just the kids who were casually, who casually adopted that way of talking. Like you'd be talking to like some blonde popular girl who would be like, oh, what's up, dude? Oh, yeah, that's hella tight. You know, and you'd just be like, why are you talking that way? You know, you're just a popular girl. You're a cheerleader or something, you know? It, was, it would be the people who adopted that. It was the kind of the people who just kind of casually invested that I found the most disturbing. The people who full-on invested into being a wigger, I was just impressed that they would even do that. But looking at this Columbine picture, like, you didn't see, like, you didn't see anybody who had blatantly taken on that look. Not that I could see. Because, you know, it was something, too, that, like, in, in the years to come... Even just jocks and what people used to call preps, they kind of became like half-assed wiggers too. It just kind of became the way cool kids talked. But before that, it wasn't that way. Because like thinking about like my sister graduated high school in 1997, and she had just like a sea of of peers coming in and out of our house all the time, and some of them played football, some of them, you know, were like skateboarder music type kids. But there were really kids of all type in her social circle. And so I got a feel for them. You know, I used to hang out with them. I used to, you know, look up to them to some degree. And so I kind of got a feel for the way they talked. And none of them were wiggers. You know, and, and, you know, her friends, too, smoked a bunch of weed. They partied. There was never a single one who qualified as a wigger. None of them really listened to rap. So there was this transition like by 1998, 1999, where like more and more kids like thinking about my area, you know, the Seattle area, fewer kids were getting into like alternative rock, like in terms of just like, like you didn't go to school dances and listen to rock music. It was just like a a nonstop sea, a nonstop stream. Is it a sea or a stream? It was a stream. It was a nonstop stream of rap and R&B by that point. And that was kind of reflected in the way people presented themselves. And even just people like who otherwise would be considered jocks or athletes kind of took that on. Popular girls took that on. Um, so that was a major change. And like, so, so looking at this Columbine picture, you really don't see that as much. You just, you kind of, you see a different era. You see a pre- a pre-millennium, a pre-2000 group of high schoolers. And then it's it's cast in this very dark light because up in the corner you have these kids who ended up killing a bunch of other kids. So it's there's this nostalgia to the experience, but it's very dark because of what happened. But it's like it's because of that dark event that we have this little time capsule because that's kind of what it is. Like when you look up Columbine, it's kind of this time capsule of a bygone era and pop culture doesn't give you access to that time capsule. Nothing else really does. You know, and I do feel like it's depicted with a degree of accuracy, you know, because it was basically kind of like a documentary or something. It was like, because this was a, a crime it was documented with more accuracy than pop culture could document it, if that makes sense. But I was looking through, what I was actually reading the last couple nights was the police interviews with the friends and just acquaintances 
of the Columbine killers. It was uh, these are like police reports where they interview them, and I found that very interesting because there's no narrative. You're simply getting the raw data. Here's what do you do? What, what do you been? Oh, it's Christmas time. What have you been doing? Did you get a tree? Oh, I didn't get a tree this year. Uh, what what have you been up to? Oh, well, I, I uh, I've been reading about Columbine. I've been actually I've been I've been reading the police interviews. I didn't get an advent calendar. Instead, each day I read a police interview with a, a friend or acquaintance of the Columbine killers. Oh my God! I love Columbine too. Merry Christmas. No, but uh, I've been reading these interview these police interviews, and like what I like about it is, uh, or what's good about it. It's just, it, there's no narrative to it, because it's like anything you consume through the media, anything, any article that somebody wrote, there's such a narrative to it, whereas this is just like the raw data from the people who knew them, and I'm not even interested in that. I'm not even interested in like learning more about uh, the, the shooters or anything. I'm more just trying to get a feel for just culture at the time. That's what interests me so much. And uh, it's something I've, I've experienced as well with mafia research where, like, I would much rather read an FBI report rather than a book or an article about the mafia. Like, just reading an FBI report where an FBI agent is interviewing an informant or something. That's so much... I enjoy that so much more than reading something in a narrative form at this point. It's Because narratives just... They just end up feeling so dishonest. You know, and uh, but anyway, reading these these police interviews with the Columbine kids, one thing I noticed is that because, you know, there was a trench coat mafia like there was a group of kids who called themselves the trench coat mafia and the Columbine killers were kind of friendly with them. But, you know, it, they weren't necessarily members of it, if you could even call it that. But they asked all these kids who were apparently members of the trench coat mafia and these are freaking teenagers, like, you know, and, and apparently the story goes that it's like this group of kids started wearing trench coats and then somebody who wasn't their friend was like, what do you guys think you are, the trench coat mafia or something? And so they just were like, that's a funny name. Let's call ourselves that. But it was just a group of kids, you know, just like any group of friends. But what's funny in these police interviews, they interview kids who were involved with the trench coat mafia, and all of them say, like, I was the first one to wear a trench coat. Each one of them. <laughs> Each one of them was like, oh, I was actually the first one to wear the trench coat. And then so-and-so did, and so-and-so did. So it's like, they all want to be the, the premier jewel hunter. They all want to be the first one to have worn the trench coat. It's so funny to me. Where it's like each one of them practically claims to have been the first one to wear the trench coat. And one of them even says about the Eric Harris, the Columbine killer, one of them even says like, oh, well, last summer he completely changed the, the style of music he listens to and the style of dress. Last summer he totally changed his, his interests. So it's funny, like basically calling him a poser, basically being like, like he didn't even listen to Ramstein before last summer. 
but you could see, you got you got that feeling from these police interviews where they're all like, "Well, I was actually the first one to start wearing a trench coat, and then so and so and so and so did, and then so and so and so and so did." So like, they're they all want to have been the first one, and then one of them even says, and what's funny too is a bunch of them even say, "Well, I stopped wearing my trench coat this year when everybody else in the group did." And one of them even said, like, I stopped wearing my trench coat because everybody else in the group did, and I wanted to, like, retain my individuality. So it's funny that there was even this kind of trench coat drama. And you could just imagine the conversations that probably went on between them, where it's like, yeah, he only got, he got his trench coat after me. I was the first one. But it's funny how they all tell the police. And, like, you know, these are private interviews with the police that, in theory, aren't going to be public. I mean, they were made public later, but in theory, these conversations weren't going to be public, but they all felt the need to tell the frickin' police that they were the first one in their group of friends to wear the trench coat. And I'm just like, that is perfect. That is being a teenager in a nutshell. And, you know, the trench coat was, thing was something that I observed for a few years before Columbine. And, of course, that, that made trench coats permanently, like... It put trench coats on the map, obviously, where like from that point on, kids wearing trench coats was associated with school shooters and a certain archetype of kid. But before that, it was it was definitely a thing. And it's one of those things that interests me. You know, I talk about urban legends and it was interesting to me that like before the Internet, urban legends still managed to travel around the entire country. And like my school had urban legends that I later found out were going on everywhere. And that just before the internet even. And it just blows my mind how this organic word of mouth of urban legends. But it's also true for fashion and things like that. Where there were kids around my town, like thinking about when my sister was in high school. There were guys in her high school who were very nerdy and awkward who wore the trench coats. You'd see them around town. Like there was a guy I used to always see around town in like 1995, 96. He was probably a little older than my sister. Really skinny guy with a long ponytail. And you'd, you'd see him around town wearing one of those black duster jackets. You know, it's not just a trench coat. It's like, it's like the same ones the Columbine guys wore where it's not just a long black trench coat. It's got that, that like, what do you even call it? It's like got that like uh, that weird shoulder thing. It's apparently an Australian style of coat, which I didn't know. It makes sense. It kind of looks Australian, but it's got the weird like shoulder thing, uh, like this extra layer around the shoulders. I don't even know what that's called. I don't even understand the function, but it like sticks out. It's almost like shoulder pads, but not really. It's a duster. If you look up a duster, you know what I'm talking about. But there was a guy who walked around Kirkland. I would always see him walking. And he was really thin with glasses. He might have had a little mustache. And he had acne. You know, he, he was a, a really just a mess, you know. Very, very thin with acne, a little mustache, super long ponytail pulled straight back, and a black duster that he was always wearing. And I remember knowing, like, even as a kid, even as, like, a nine-year-old, seeing that guy around town, being, like, not looking at that guy and being, like, oh, he looks cool. He looks, oh, he sure looks like a cool hit man. Oh, that guy looks like such a badass. I remember as a kid knowing that that guy was a dork. And there was another guy, too, that my sister had grown up with. 
he had glasses, very awkward, very kind of like just an awkward human being, very nerdy. And I remember seeing him leaving the high school one day and he was in a big black trench coat. He was in a duster. And I just remember thinking like, he doesn't look like he thinks he looks. And there were other variations of that too. Like there was a guy my sister went to school with who her friends would talk about. Once again, like a guy that some of them had grown up with. And he started wearing like black suits to school, not a trench coat, but just like black suits. Like he started wearing like fancy suits to school and carrying a briefcase. And he started to claim that he, he like worked for some government agency. Like he had this whole delusion or fantasy. And uh, one time, like he had the briefcase, it was like a hard black briefcase. He had it in class. And like one of my sister's friends was saying how he, he like asked to see what was in it. And the kid like slammed it closed and like pulled it close to him, like acting like he was on some kind of important business. And that's not that far off from the Columbine guys. Like, you know, with one of the Columbine guys, it was like this pseudo military, pseudo hitman sort of mentality. For whatever reason, those guys, they like to like give the image like they're secret agents or they're hitmen or they're doing something cool and badass that like transcends being a teenager and, like, I wonder what happened to the secret agent guy. Because it's like he wanted to give his classmates... Because I, I remember seeing him around, even. And my sister's friends were like, he's just really weird. You know, it wasn't even like they were mean to him or anything. They were just kind of like, he's gotten really weird. He's some guy in school who basically wants his classmates to think he's a secret agent. It's like, yeah, the CIA or the NSA, they hired this teenager to go around school in a suit with a briefcase. Because that's totally what they'd do. If the CIA wanted to infiltrate a high school, they'd totally have a, a nerdy kid wear a suit and carry a briefcase around. But it's all part of the same phenomenon, you know, at least the way I see it. And so you'd see those guys with trench coats and stuff. And like my mom was even aware of it because the day Columbine happened, I remember she picked me up from school. You know, just normal. I mean, it's not like all the schools across the country got out early to observe what was happening. It was just a normal day for me. But my mom picked me up from school and she was like, yeah, there was this horrible mass shooting in Colorado. And she was like, you know, those guys that we see around town who wear the trench coats. So like even my mom was aware that that was kind of a type of kid. Because like I said, you would see him around like you'd pick up my sister from school and there'd be a couple guys in trench coats. There weren't a lot of them. They didn't have their own chapter of the trench coat, the trench coat mafia. But. You'd see him around and you knew, like my mom even knew that it was a type of kid. And when she said it, when she was like, you know, those, those guys who wear the trench coats around, it was like these guys kind of like that shot up their school. And I was like, whoa. Um, but uh, well, just to go off on like the trench coat thing for a minute, you know, that really set in stone the idea that like wearing a trench coat signifies that you're an angry nerd trying to be a badass and then post 1999 it's also kind of a veiled threat because like I said even in my high school there were some nerdy kids who just played computer games all the time and it was always suddenly they start wearing a trench coat and they have the right to do that they I don't think that the school should have banned trench coats or anything my junior high banned hats we weren't allowed to wear baseball hats because they said it was gang related I lived in the frickin' suburbs of Seattle, and they said we couldn't wear ball caps because it was gang-related. 
But they didn't ban trench coats after that or anything. But, you know, when a nerdy guy did start wearing a trench coat, which they occasionally did, it always felt like a veiled threat, which is like, you better not make fun of me. See this trench coat? Do you know what this trench coat represents? I always felt like it was kind of a, almost like armor, almost like saying like, yeah, I know that I'm a nerd. And guess what? If you mess with me, you know what the guys in the trench coats are going to do to you. And just, it seemed like, I don't know, it's, it seemed very self-defeating too when I saw these kids wearing them later. I'm like, come on, man. Come on, man. Do you really need to go that route? Not that you shouldn't be allowed, but I've never seen somebody look cool in one. I mean, first of all, those dusters look awkward to begin with because of those weird shoulder. It's like, what even is that? It's like, does that come on and off? It's like this, it's like a cape around the shoulders. It's like a shawl. It's like a, it's like a shawl that's attached to the shoulders, which automatically makes it look weird. And so, you know, nobody's, I've never seen somebody look cool wearing one of those. You know, and you, and you think about like what was leading up to that and like, because there were games like Shadowrun, there were some video games, there was some stuff that utilized that, but it's like nobody ever looked cool. I never saw a single kid who pulled it off. Every single time it looked like the trench coat was wearing them rather than they were wearing the trench coat. And usually the rest of their clothes didn't match with it. It's not like they were fashionistas who like knew, it's not like they were wearing sleek cool clothing underneath the trench coat they were usually wearing like a baggy t-shirt and shorts but i mean and too like you know silent bob from kevin smith movies i don't know what year clerks came out early 90s probably early mid 90s but that's kind of what that character was going for too it was kind of like this like you know i don't even know i, I mean obviously he wasn't going for like a, a nerd sort of character but it's kind of the same thing like a sort of loser guy who wears a trench coat around town it was something that people recognized but then after that it would always be associated with um school shooters um because like i wore a trench coat actually for a halloween costume one year and, and it was this was after Columbine, and somebody right away was like, oh, you going for a Columbine thing? It was like you couldn't even wear a, a trench coat for a completely different Halloween costume without somebody making a comment. But anyway, what I was going to say, though, is like there were, there were, you know, the game Shadowrun had a character in black sunglasses with a trench coat. The Matrix wasn't out yet because that would be something people associated with it with later would be the Matrix. But this is before the Matrix but nobody ever looked cool in a trench coat. They always looked awkward. They always looked stupid. Including the Columbine guys. Like, if you ever see those videos of them, they made those videos of themselves, like, walking around the school in trench coats. They look freaking stupid. They look so stupid in those coats. And to think that, like, they were wearing those coats when they killed people. Like, the last thing that some people saw was these awkward dudes in trench coats walking around. I was the first one to wear one. All my friends started wearing them after me. Just so funny that like even a mass tragedy, even being associated with these murderers, those kids still felt the need to tell the police they were the first one. I was the first one to wear one. Then so-and-so copied me. It just shows you the urge to do that is so strong. 
They did it about music. Oh, I was the first one to listen to Ramstein. They copied me. Just funny. It's funny how strong that urge is. But, um, what was I going on about the trench coats? Yeah, just everybody kind of recognized that was a, a thing that a certain type of guy was doing. And then Col- Columbine really solidified it and communicated it to the masses. It communicated that trench coats are associated with a certain sort of nerdy guy who wants to appear more badass and then post Columbine who also wants it to be vaguely threatening. But um, what else is there to say about Columbine? Not much. I don't know. I was thinking about how that era, like I mentioned in the last episode, something about suicide rates. Like I mentioned that, you know, you hear about suicide rates climbing, but I wasn't sure what the statistics actually said. And I decided to look it up here. Dude, it's, it's Christmas Eve. You're talking about teen suicide rates. Just been obsessed with teens lately. But I found that like since the early 2010s, teen suicide has just been going straight up. It's, it's gotten extremely high in the last few years. And it's since the early 2010s. And what I found that was interesting is that teens, excuse me, teen suicide was extremely high in the 80s. It got very high around the mid 80s, up until the early 90s. And then around 93, 94, it just starts dropping dramatically. Which is interesting considering that's, you know, around the period that Kirk Corbrain killed himself, Kirk Corbrain. It's interesting that, like, you'd think that suicide rates would have gone up after Kirk killed himself because, you know, he was such a celebrated figure. Like, my sister and all her friends were obsessed with Nirvana. They were obsessed with Kurt Cobain. It was a serious tragedy when he killed himself. And there was concern at that time that, like, oh, kids are going to kill themselves because their hero killed himself. Like, one of my friends who's is a little bit... He's just a few years older than I am. He told me that when Kurt Cobain died, he cried every day for a month. I mean, that's how important he was to kids at that time. But suicide rates actually dramatically decreased around that time. Not because of Kurt Cobain's suicide, but just the trend was, you know, it, it was on the decrease. And I know that there was, there was a weird social contagion with suicide, I believe in the 80s. And that probably coincides with those rates being extremely high during that period where this is like before I was fully conscious. So I don't think that I was really I don't know what was going on, but there were a lot of news stories about how a bunch of kids in a friend group in the same high school would kill themselves. It was like one kid would kill themselves in a high school and all of a sudden multiple kids would do it. There was this trend that was going on, I think, in the 80s. And then you have the early 90s where, you know, after this peak, where it just starts dramatically decreasing. And that continued. The period that I was coming of age and like through my teenage years was the lowest the suicide rate had been for since like the 70s, which is crazy. Like, I didn't realize that, that I was actually I grew up I was a teenager during the lowest suicide rate in many, many years. And then that continued until the early 2010s. And that's interesting to me because the 90s were a genuinely good time. Not like life was perfect, but I look back at my childhood and I'm like, that was a fun time. It was very hopeful. The economy was doing well. There was still a lot of cool stuff to consume. The internet wasn't here yet. 
It was just gradually making its way into people's homes and into people's lives. But it was still like a lot of what you were experiencing was like, if you want to do something fun, you go to that place. You want to rent a movie, you go to the video store. You want a comic book, you go to the comic book store. You know, you know, you want to play a game, you know, yeah, you have video games in your house, but there are still arcades. You go play laser tag. You know, you call people on the phone. It was still a lot. Your experience was still a lot more direct, but there was plenty to do. You know, like I said, life wasn't perfect, but it was very hopeful. Like the the dot-com boom was going on. There was some new changes going on that were exciting, but they were gradual. They weren't forced upon you. It was just kind of this gradual technological shift. I don't know how that impacted suicide rates, but it it definitely was a fun and kind of hopeful period. And then too, I mean, to be fair too, it's like that was also the era of like anti-suicide PSAs. I'm sure that played a role, even though that stuff is kind of cheesy where it's like we live in this world now where it's like to even talk about suicide, you have to like read off the 1-800 number. I'm about to mention suicide. If you ever think, if you ever have suicidal thoughts, here's the phone. You know, it's like you have to say that every time you even talk about suicide now. If that helps people, that helps people. But it is kind of, it's like a disclaimer or something. But, you know, the 90s were a period where that was all over the place. So maybe that did contribute. I mean, people knew they could call a place. They knew that there was somebody they could talk to. You know, I mean, I know suicide hotline, hotlines had been around for a long time. Ted Bundy worked for a suicide hotline, I think, in the 70s. So suicide hotlines had always been around, but the 90s were when you started to see those PSAs everywhere. So maybe that helped. I don't know. I doubt there's any one factor. I mean, I'm sure there's all kinds of correlations you could find. When people look at these line graphs, when they look at these statistics, they always want to find like the single factor that contributed to a low suicide rate or a high suicide rate. And you're never going to know for sure exactly what it was. And it's usually all kinds of factors. But it is interesting looking at that being like, you know, that's interesting to me that the suicide rate was so low when I was a teenager. And then why would it shoot up starting in the early 2010s? You know, it's the end of Obama's first term. It was a few years after the recession. I don't think it would have been recession related. Maybe there was an overall growing climate of despair, but it's like my age group was were the ones who were the most affected by the recession as far as young people go. I graduated college in 2008, which was when the recession started. And you were happy if you got a minimum wage temp job. You know, you were just happy, like despite, you know, you graduate college and it's like, oh, I'm going to be able to get a decent job. No, you were happy in 2008 leaving college if you got a minimum wage temp job, if you got anything. That's how bad it was. And uh, so it's like my age group was the most affected by the recession. Like teenagers weren't worried about that yet. Like, it may have impacted their lives in some way, but it's like a teenage, even if somebody was 18 in 2008, they had four, if they were going to college, they had four years to worry about the recession. 
they had four years to worry about you know the state of the economy pretty much. So I don't think the recession would have contributed to the suicide rate starting to climb several years after the recession. Because let's say like let's say suicide rates started to climb around 2011. Things were picking up by then. You know, like I got a good job in 2011. Things felt like they were picking up considerably by 2011. So I don't know that it would be economically influenced. You know, who knows? Um, but what's interesting about that, too, is like that's that's when things that's when these anti-bullying policies were in full effect. That's when kids stopped being allowed to say words like faggot to each other. It's when there was a growing climate of tolerance in schools when it came to like, you know, race and gender and sexuality. You know, because I have to say, too, like what's funny about like when I was in school is people said the word faggot so much. And like there weren't even enough gay kids like I never observed. There were there were a few kids who you knew were gay. They may they may have been closeted, but it's like you just knew. I never remember them getting harassed. You know, maybe I didn't witness it, but I never remember any instance of them getting harassed for it. But everybody else, like all the straight guys just called each other faggot all the time. And not always in a mean way. You know, friends would call each other that. Sup, fags? You know, it was something that people just said jokingly. It was something that people said. I can imagine if you were a a closeted gay kid, it would have sucked to hear that word all the time. But uh, it was just something that everybody said freely all the time to the point where a teacher, we had a teacher one time, she was, I think she was a substitute. Like we all just got into class. This is when I was in junior high and she just went on this tirade at the start of class, completely unprovoked. She just like walked into class and she goes, I am so sick of what I'm hearing in the halls. I just walked down the hall and I hear fag this, gay this. Everybody's calling each other faggot. You know, she she said that, and we were like, "Whoa!" We didn't. We said nothing. She's like, "I am so sick of that." There was actually a teacher named Mrs. Fag. Believe it or not, she was a substitute. She was almost mythical. I had heard about her. I had heard whispers and rumors about her that there was a substitute named Mrs. Fag, and it was spelled F A G U E. I mean, God, what what a horrible name to have. What an amazing name to have. But one time I finally had her. I was the TA. I was the teacher's assistant for the PE teacher. And one day he was gone. And I go into class and it's Mrs. Fag. And she was so fucking mean. You'd think that Mrs. Fag would be nice. She was mean, like cruel. The cruel Mrs. Fag. And she just yelled like like she was nice to me because I was the TA, but it was a class of the kids were a little bit younger than I was. So I don't know if they had heard of her. Like I had already been at the school for a couple years. So I had heard the rumors that there was this substitute that would occasionally pop in named Mrs. Fag. But these younger kids who were in the PE class, they might not have heard of her. So it might have been a total surprise. They might have been shocked to learn there was a teacher with this this name. Because when she announced her name, she was like, my name is Mrs. Fag. She was really like, like I'm talking like aggressive, very like verb, uh, verbally abusive, practically. 
probably because of her name. She probably felt like she had to like sh- put up a hard front or something. And there was this kid who was kind of a funny kid, but you could tell he was asking this sincerely, but also kind of wanting to like point out the elephant in the room. And I remember he he raised his hand and he goes, he kind of stammered and he was like, excuse, excuse me, what what did you say your name was? And she goes, Mrs. Fag. And he goes, okay. <laughs> she was like a fire-breathing dragon. There's a fire-breathing dragon named Mrs. Fag who substitutes. No, but that was her name. That was how she pronounced it. I think it was F-A-G-U-E. Is that French? What is that? But people just threw that around to the point where like teachers would address it. Like, I'm so sick of hearing this. It reminds me of this. Uh, I had this principal in elementary school named Mrs. Fuel. What's up with these names? Mrs. Fag and Mrs. Fuel. It was spelled in some Germanic way, though, like F-E-U-H-L, but it was pronounced Fuel. But uh, Mrs. Fuel, she had to come in and talk, like give our class a lecture, because when I was in third grade, kids got really into the word hump. Like every kid, even girls, because girls didn't really break the rules very much. Girls were very law-abiding when it came to school. They didn't say anything too inappropriate. But even the girls, like everybody in my class, everybody in my grade was like joking about humping all the time. And not in some graphic way, just like like the idea of somebody humping. And there was this kid named Tom who just, he seemed like he came from the Irish countryside or something. He His family was like really poor like way way more than any other family in the area. Nobody made fun of him for that, but it was just like he was like this wild animal. Like his family lived across the street from the school and everybody just knew they lived in poverty. There were a bunch of kids. He was just very wild. And they would tell him to do things. Like they would be like, Tom, go jump off this thing. And he would go do it. Oh, hey, Tom, go jump in that mud puddle. And he would do it. He was just kind of unhinged. But at some point, people started telling him to go hump things. They'd be like, Tom, go hump this. Oh, go hump that person. And he would just run up and kind of like hump at them. Like I said, nothing even like, nothing graphic or that sexual. It was just sort of like a stupid kid thing. But like word got around that all the kids were saying hump too much or they were talking about humping too much. And so the principal came to give us a talk about it. The entire grade gathered in a room And Mrs. Fuel was like, I need to talk to you guys about what you guys are saying. I hear there's a lot of talk about whooping. And we were all just like, huh? And she goes, yeah, I'm hearing you guys are going around saying whoop this, whoop that. And something had gotten lost in translation where like she thought we were doing, like she thought the the whole grade, it was like an epidemic of whooping. Which like I'd never heard that before. Like, you think about whooping being kind of like hooting and hollering. But whooping. Like, something got lost in translation where, like, she was told, like, somebody tried to communicate to the principal that kids were talking about humping, joking about humping. Kids were humping. And somehow that got translated to her in her brain as whooping. And so it was like one of those moments where we had to try not to laugh because the teacher's like, I need to talk to you about whooping. Like it, what, it reminds me of that story I told about when I got in trouble in football for doing the DX suck it move. Like when I did the crotch chop suck it move to a player and I got penalized. 
how my coach, one of my coaches thought that I had done like a humping maneuver. Like he didn't know about pro wrestling and DX and suck it. So he thought that I had gotten penalized for doing that like classic humping maneuver where you like put your fists out and like move your hips forward. You know, like like everybody knows what the humping maneuver is, which I would never, I've never done that in my life. I've never done that like stupid fucking humping maneuver. Stupid fucking humping maneuver. I've never done that in my life. So it was that much more embarrassing that I'd gotten a penalty for doing suck it, which is way cooler than a humping maneuver. But my coach had no idea what that was. So like he's like, I don't want to see any more of this. And he does like the humping maneuver himself. And he was a big fat black guy, so that we made it that much funnier. But uh, it, that's kind of the same thing as like when the principal was like, supposed to give us a lecture about not using the word humping, not joking about humping. And she's like, I don't want to hear any more whooping. I don't want to hear that anybody else was doing any whooping. Whoop this, whoop that. Just funny how things get lost. You know, it's it just, there's such a disconnect with adults. Like I was talking about, you know, Miles joke in the last episode, or not Miles joke, like Miles real life story about his creative writing teacher wrote a story and read it to the class and was trying to like relate to the kids by saying like, by having this teenage character in his story where he said like, he wore all black and he hadn't smiled since the last fish concert. Like thinking that he's giving these kids like an accurate representation of a teenager. Yeah, the kids who wear all black, they love fish. I mean, that sounds like something like a, a, a journalist, like that sounds like something a TV anchor would say in coverage of Columbine. Investigators say he wore all black and hadn't smiled since the last fish concert. You know, and that was like the level of coverage you were getting about Columbine. Like they say that they were obsessed with Marilyn Manson and they were part of something called the trench coat mafia. It's like you, you realize that was just like a joke among a group of losers. Like a group of losers jokingly called themselves the trench coat mafia and you're talking about it on TV like it was like a real cult or a gang. It's like those old uh, 2020 where 2020 covered like straight edge. Those are really embarrassing to watch. They're like, there's a new trend sweeping the suburbs. It's called straight edge. They don't drink. They don't smoke. They don't have promiscuous sex. But they're dangerous. And your kid might get involved. Like those old straight edge uh, 2020, whatever you call those, like exposés. And they'll interview some kid who's like, yeah, they, they do this and they do this. And like they mosh at shows and they're violent. Just There's just such a disconnect when it comes to old people trying to understand some of those things. Because I don't know, I had a friend in high school who was in a straight edge band. He was very involved in the whole scene. Like he was part of a crew. He was part of a straight edge crew. I didn't really know the other guys. They were older. But I mean, they were religious about it. There was a religious fervor to what they were doing where they took it dead seriously. Like they only wore shirts of straight edge bands, all their music, like they they played in a band and all the music was about being straight edge. They they didn't even want to associate with anybody who wasn't straight edge. And when my friend, he quit, like he, uh, he started smoking weed every day. He went from being straight edge to just like smoking weed every single day. And they, they of course kicked him out of the band and, 
were kind of I don't know I don't I don't know all, what all went on, but he definitely didn't hang out with them anymore very much. So they were re- they're pretty religious about it, you know. So it's like straight edge. Like the guys who were involved in that, a lot of them were dead serious about it. It was very religious. I mean, and they were like whirling dervishes or something. Like, you know, the way they would go to shows and like uh, if there was a breakdown, they're spinning around, moshing, doing what they do. Pretty much like whirling dervishes experiencing religious ecstasy. I mean, there was something very cult-like and religious about straight edge guys, especially the ones who were deeply involved and kind of part of a crew. But those 2020 exposés were so ridiculous where it's like, there's a new, there's a new gang in the suburbs. It's called Straight Edge. It sounds like a parent's dream. They don't drink. They don't smoke. But here's what they do. They beat people up. It's kind of the same way they talked about the trench coat mafia. When like the reality is like, these are just nerdy losers who look dorky wearing trench coats. And a couple of them happen to be violent. A couple of them happen to lose their minds and kill people. But the trench coat mafia was treated for a little while like it was a real thing. They're called the trench coat mafia. So it just shows you there's always... They wear all black and they haven't smiled since the last fish concert. There's just always that disconnect. They do a lot of what is called whooping. They're very into something called whooping, which seems to be some kind of sexual innuendo. There's just something about adults always getting things wrong. Something about that. It's called whooping. It's called whooping. But anyway, Christmas Eve here, I got stuff to do, I guess. I guess. I'm not planning on reading about Columbine tonight. I do have some standards for myself. I feel like I got everything out of it I I possibly could. Every once in a while you have to go take that deep dive. No, but it's a bygone era. 1999 was a very specific year that I don't feel like has been accurately depicted in pop culture. And because this infamous crime happened that year, you know, it, it was very well documented like suburban culture at that time. And just, you know, one other thing too, like talking about trench coats being, you know, a trend that was going on across the country. How like that was a type of guy long before Columbine to the point where even my mom knew it. Even my mom was able to say like, you know, those guys that we see around town, like those kind of dorky guys in the trench coats. Well, two of them in Colorado shot up their school. Like it was something that even a parent could see that I knew about. I was a little kid and even I knew there was a dorky sort of guy who wore trench coats. But the other side of that is like, there was a term that my sister's friends used and some of them played football. Like they were friends with jocks and everything, but they had a certain term they used for like a certain sort of preppy jock kind of guy, which was white hat. Like I still remember like one of my sister's friends being like, oh yeah, like I, I met up with Josh the other day. He's a white hat. And it was a term for a certain type of jock who wore a white hat. Because that was also a period where these white hats were very popular. A lot of colleges made them. High schools made them. Where it was just like this very pristine white baseball hat with like the team logo on the front. And for whatever reason, jocks loved those at the time. And so as a result, like a lot of jocks were recognizable for their white hats. 
But what's interesting about that is like I remember my sister's friends using that to refer to jocks. They were like, oh, yeah, they're a bunch of white hats. And they didn't even mean it in like a they got along with those guys like they had friends who were white. hats. I've got friends who are white hats. I've got friends who are trench coats and I got friends who are white hats. I'm friends with everybody. No, but they they had friends who who were that way. It was just a term that they used to refer to guys who were like, you know, kind of preps, as they used to call them, and into sports. But what's interesting is like the Columbine guys used that too. Like when they went into the library to shoot people, they apparently said like anybody with a white hat stand up. Anybody, and they apparently that was a term that was used in the school. Like they referred to those guys as white hats too. So it's another one of those things, those pre-internet things that wasn't just one school. You know, because it's like, yeah, Colorado isn't worlds away from Washington State, but we don't border each other. They're definitely different places. But the fact that high schools in both places were using the term white hat to refer to jocks. The fact that guys in both places were wearing trench coats to try, like nerdy guys were wearing trench coats in both places to try to look badass. It's just interesting that those trends seem to exist in so many different places. But I I asked somebody about the white hat thing some years back. Like I was talking to a guy in town here who was like, I think he's around 40. And I was like, do you remember like when you were in high school, like the term white hat? Like, did you know, did people refer to the jocks as white hats? And he was like, yeah. Like, he had completely forgotten about it, but he was like, whoa, yeah, actually, I do remember that. And I was like, see, there was something going on where, like, that was a term that was used for jocks back then. And as someone who's very interested in language and just especially, like, ca- like the way casual language just sort of travels... That kind of thing gets me. And that's one of the reasons I find Columbine interesting, because even though it was one specific place, a small town in Colorado or just a town, a suburb in in Colorado, I feel like it is this accurate snapshot of what high school culture was like at the time. I do feel like it's some sort of representation of things. And and I I do have more I want to say, because talking about the suicide rate, where I was saying how, before I got on this tangent about whooping and all of that, I was saying how it's interesting the suicide rate was so low during a time that everybody was calling each other faggot nonstop. It's funny to me that like, and people were mean. That's the thing is like the suicide rate was extremely low when I was a teenager, yet everybody was mean to each other and everybody was calling each other fag and faggot all the time. You know, it was before the the anti-bullying stuff had been really put into place. It was a much less tolerant atmosphere in some ways. Yet the suicide rate was very low. It seems like the depression and anxiety rates were very low. There weren't very many school shootings. So it's like as as schools have become more tolerant, as kids have been encouraged to be nicer to each other, as tolerance for like, you know, being an alternative kid is much different today than it used to be. Kids accept outcasts way more, maybe not, you know, maybe not a true outcast, but like kids accept like dyed hair. They accept kind of an alternative aesthetic because that's been around for decades now. Like it's not a new thing for a kid to wear black clothes and dye their hair now. And from from what I've gathered, it's like that kind of thing is much more readily accepted now. So it's like, as we've entered this this decade of acceptance, of anti-bullying, of tolerance, 
suicide rates have gone up, depression and anxiety has gone up, medication has gone up, mass shootings are more common. What's up with that? Is that just a byproduct of our culture? You know, again, I'm not going to try to find one single, you know, I'm not going to try to find like the one influence that correlates with it. Because I mean, somebody who's on the Christian right would be like, oh, well, you notice that that's when God was officially out of the schools. The suicide rates and mass shootings and mental disorders have gone up when God is out of school. You know, somebody could make that argument. Somebody could make, like, I could make the argument that, oh, anti-bullying campaigns have actually made kids more miserable. Having a more tolerant environment has actually made kids more miserable. We can see that it has doesn't seem to have helped, but somebody else could make the argument that, like, without anti-bullying campaigns, without this new tolerance, maybe suicide rates would be even higher. I don't know. But something's going on where kids aren't happy. And these things that are supposed to be helping that environment seem to have made kids that much more sensitive and vulnerable and upset. Because even though Columbine happened in 1999, and I, you know, I wasn't even in high school yet. I was in junior high. And so you became aware of the reality of school shootings at that point. They weren't that common. You know, like even though like that kind of got the ball rolling on this new era of school violence, it wasn't like suddenly school shootings were happening all the time like they have in the last decade. It seems like school shootings have actually happened more. I mean, there were what, like three this year so far that I know of. So it's like suicide and homicide among teens have gone up and you also look at who's killing themselves because it's one thing to say like oh suicide rates have gone up because of the internet you know there's these professors who wrote a book about how like teenage girls their anxiety and depression has gone up because of social media pressure they're saying like teen girls are just having severe anxiety disorders because of the added pressure of social media snapchat and instagram And they now have this whole other dimension where they're seeking approval and popularity. But teenage girls aren't the ones who are killing themselves in droves. You know, men are the men are the ones who kill other people and they're the ones who kill themselves at a far greater rate. There's a severity to a man's thinking, to a boy's thinking, where it is boys who kill themselves at a far greater rate. And in fact, like the suicide rate has shot up among men in general, but particularly white men, like the largest demographic for suicide is white men, I think, under the age of 50. And, you know, it's not just kids in high school. It's also millennials. It's also Gen Xers. A lot of white men are killing themselves. And that's a, a topic for another time. But Men are the ones killing themselves. Boys are the ones who kill themselves. Girls become suicidal, but it's far more rare for girls to actually kill themselves. Although, you know, going back to Columbine, I was mentioning how, like, there are these girls who will go to Littleton. There are these women who will go to Littleton. It's almost like going to Mecca. And I, I was when I was doing some reading the other night, it's not just that they go there, like, Multiple women have gone to Littleton and committed suicide. Like Columbine-obsessed women have gone to Littleton and killed themselves there. 
Like there was a woman a few years ago who lived in Florida. She went to Littleton and like threatened schools and then killed herself with a shotgun. And uh, in 2010, there were these two twins in Australia, two twin girls in Australia who flew all the way to Littleton and tried to commit suicide. I think one of them, I'm trying to remember the specifics, but one of them, I think, successfully killed herself. And the other one, I think, just almost died. But like their parents had to come from Australia to like take them, take one of them back or something. But it's like, that is so insane that like, these women don't just want to go because you, you think about like the the boys who are obsessed with Columbine. It's usually this sort of like I'm gonna finish the job that Eric and Dylan started. I'm gonna finish the job that Eric and Dylan started. You know they kind of have that attitude of like I have to be a school shooter like them. But with these women, it's like it's this much more almost uh, cultish. Like they have a supernatural affinity for this place. It's like a mystical thing with some of these women where it's like, I have to go to Littleton and commit suicide. It's freaking crazy that multiple women have gone to Littleton, like at least three women, two of them twins from Australia have gone to Littleton to kill themselves because of Columbine, because they're so obsessed with Columbine. I mean, it's like there's something almost mystical about it. But anyway, I mean, and that's that shows you something there too. That it's like, I mean, women. It's very rare for women to attempt suicide or actually kill themselves. So it's like the fact that three women obsessed with Columbine have gone to Littleton and either killed themselves or tried is pretty pretty significant statistically. But uh, you know, by and large, of course, it's men who kill themselves. And so, like, looking at the increase in suicide, it's like. It's obviously men killing themselves at a far higher rate. It's boys killing themselves at a far higher rate. And so that should be considered in all this. What does that say? What does that tell us? Something isn't right. You know, as therapy has become more normalized, and I'm not anti-therapy. I'm critical of some of the approaches to it. You know, I'm critical of the way that that's become a religion unto itself. But it's like, the fact is, is that suicide, like that teenagers have become more suicidal, more homicidal, more depressed and anxious than they had been among the previous generation, which is mine. And they also exist in an environment where there's more therapy, there's more outreach. There are more resources to help them. There's more medication. There's more tolerance. There's more strict anti-bullying policy in place, yet their lives seem to be significantly more miserable. Maybe it has nothing to do with those factors, but I also wonder if maybe they're not getting, maybe they're not able to express themselves naturally, you know? Why was the suicide rate so low when everybody was calling each other faggot in the hallways? I'm not saying that's what they should do. <laughs> you, know, you want the suicide rate to go down? Well, you got to call each other this. You got to use gay slurs toward everybody and anybody in the hallway. But I don't know. You know, I, I do think there's a necessary kind of venting and meanness that kids have to go through that shouldn't be cruel, but it's it's like a muscle that kids need to learn to exercise. And if they're not allowed to exercise that, it's kind of weird. But like, I, I would consider the internet and all this too, because what, 
when the suicide rate starts to climb, it's the early 2010s, you know, which which has to be, you know, that has to be mentioned that it was pre-Trump's Because, I mean, the way people's brains reset in 2016, I can just imagine somebody being like, well, the suicide rate's gone up because of Trump's Because they don't actually remember life before Trump's There's a lot of people whose brains just completely reset in late 2016. But it's like it's it's important to note that it was it was starting to shoot up in the early 2010s. And you can see where that's when social media became a much bigger part of people's lives. So I would include that. It's when the Internet became like a fully ingrained part. It's when people got smartphones. So I'm sure that all factors in. I wouldn't say it's the sole factor. But the early 2010s, that's when people started having Internet access in their pocket all the time. It's when they started being part of this, you know, simulation of the human subconscious, the collective human subconscious called social media. It's when they started being way more aware of what each other was saying and thinking at all times. It's when people became far more politicized. And I don't think that can be left out of the conversation either. Where teenagers, when I was in school, weren't very political. There were a couple punk kids, like there was a girl in my school who had like a a George Bush backpatch that said, not my president. There was a rich Republican girl who, she was one of those kind of girls who would just say in class, like, oh, did you see George Bush on the, uh, did you see George Bush on the State of the Union? He looks so handsome. You know, there was a girl like that who had rich Republican parents who just probably fed her talking points. But that was exceptional. People like that were the exception. Like the punk kids who hated George W. Bush and the rich Republican girls who loved George W. Bush, they were the exception. Like most kids really didn't have hardline political stances. Like even when the Iraq war started, there was a teacher, kind of a hippie-ish teacher, and a couple senior girls. I think I was like a junior maybe that year. A couple senior girls who like took the bus to Seattle to protest against the Iraq war. But once again, they were a tiny minority. You know, there was a tiny number of students who even had an opinion on the Iraq war. People were just living their teenage lives for the most part. Kids didn't have, their identities had nothing to do with politics. Even the punk kids weren't truly concerned with politics. Even the punk kids just kind of wanted an identity to fit in with. And, you know, that George W. Bush backpatch probably meant relatively little. It just meant basically like I'm anti-authority. I'm anti-authority. But um, I think there's been this increasing politicization of teenagers and their identities have become very politicized. And we can see that now where, you know, talking recently about just what's happened with gender and sexuality in school with race. Not that these things were never a factor before, but the way that the conversation surrounding those things has mutated, it's become a completely political topic. And kids are consuming a lot of political information concerning these identities. They have much more distinct political opinions. And that can't make them happy. Because they're now concerned with all of these things going on around them that they can't actually control. 
And I think that has probably contributed to some of the misery kids are going through is that they're now concerned with so many things that are outside of their control because teenagers already feel like they don't have control over their lives. They already feel like they're under their parents' roof. They're going to school where they're told what to do. At most, they can drive a car. At most, they can kind of go and do things with their friends semi-independently. But it's like they most kids still have to report to their parents They're still told what to do all day at school. So they don't really feel like their lives are theirs. And now you add in like all of these big factors going on where like now you have to be hyper conscious of everybody's identity and what that means politically and what these people are trying to do. And, you know, I've mentioned how all of these kids have this uh, uh, attitude like if you don't support my current identity, you're trying to get me killed. You're trying to get me to kill myself. Like there's this kind of persecution complex that's developed in all this where it's like, if you don't explicitly condone what I'm doing, you're trying to get me killed. And that's become a common talking point to where you could, if you just see the way teenagers are expressing themselves, a lot of them believe that. A lot of them believe that, you know, if you don't explicitly support what they're doing, you're an antagonist. You're trying to hurt them in some way. And that's, you know, just an epidemic up and down the board where I think the fact that people are on social media where they expect this, they expect, oh, you better like my post. Oh, you better like my post or else you hate me. If you don't like my posts, I know that you hate me. We've kind of developed that mindset, which is why the whole like system is so nefarious because it's, it's given people this expectation that like if somebody likes you, They have to explicitly signal that all the time. They have to like everything you do. And if somebody isn't explicitly supporting you all the time, well, they're a hater. They hate you. I think we've gotten into that mindset. and And in general, we've gotten into this sort of like wartime thinking about everything. Like this plays into just like if you read the arguments that people have online, if you read, if you, if you hear the way pundits express themselves, everybody's in this state of hypervigilance. And it's, it's almost like this wartime thinking where everybody reads into everything everybody's saying and reads into it in the worst possible way too. Where everything is a dog whistle. Everybody's signaling something under the surface that means this. And that thing that they really mean under the surface is trying to destroy you and everything you value. Oh, when they say this, it's communism. Oh, when they say this, it's fascism. And so we're constantly analyzing every little thing that everybody's saying. And teenagers are doing it too. But they have less life experience. And I think they have less life experience than even my generation did as teenagers. I mean, I know they do. They've lived in this digital realm. And then now with teenagers right now, like they've been coming up in the age of coronavi for close to two years, which we don't even know what that's going to do. We don't even know what that's going to do to kids to have had the last two years to, to have had these fundamental years of their lives be spent doing this in this hostile environment in this state of fear, having to deal with whatever their parents' opinions are about things, whatever their internet friends are saying, 
whatever echo chamber they're a part of. You know, who knows what's going to come of all that. You know, I don't know that the numbers have come out on suicide rates from the last couple of years. I know it's a concern. But it's just, you know, way less firsthand life experience, way more like data collecting. Everybody's collecting data and analyzing it. You know, it's just this state of hypervigilance, though, where it's like if somebody says something that you slightly disagree with, you interpret it as a, essentially a threat. And that's wartime thinking. And adults are thinking that way. And I believe teenagers are feeling the effects of that. That's not what started all this necessarily in the early 2010s. But it's like we can see the way that it's building. And there doesn't seem to be any relief. I guess the only relief is that maybe kids will be a little bit tougher because of this. But I don't know. You know, they've they've certainly become more sensitive. They seem to be more easily provoked by words and ideas than ever before. And I know that's a, a cliche to point out, but it seems to be true. You know, even though I defended participation trophies, even though I think participation trophies actually served a good purpose when I was growing up, you know, if a kid committed time to a team, I don't think it's wrong to give him a trophy. Because then you give the even better players two trophies, which is what we did. <laughs> you know, you still give the MVP a second trophy, but you give the you give every kid on the team a trophy to say, hey, you came to practice every day. You were part of this team. We're acknowledging that. You know, and then you give the really good players an extra trophy, which is what we did. But, you know, even though I'll defend participation trophies, there's no question that young people have become far more sensitive And I think that relates to what we're seeing with like kids killing themselves more. Kids existing in this hyper depressed, this ultra depressed, hyper anxious mode. More kids wanting to go kill their peers. You know, and so, you know, Columbine, just to finish that thought. You know, it's not just that it marked this trend. It's not that it's just a time capsule and it gives us this kind of dark nostalgia for 1999. It's also that it did mark a transition into a new world. It marked a transition into a new millennium. It marked changes, fundamental changes in teenagers. And we can see that school shooters who have happened since Columbine, you know, while the Columbine guys were on the Internet, they're, and they, they were like way more online than their peers. They were probably barely using the internet by today's standards. Whereas like the school shooters that have come out in the years since Columbine live on the internet. They just, they're like just infected with it. It's infected them. And as a result, like what comes out about them, it's like, you know, they're, they're just, it's like they're, they're fleeting. Like they, they don't have the cultural significance. It's just, they're just these angry, disgusted kids who come out of the woodwork and then they find some social media postings, but it just kind of comes and goes. And we just kind of live in a world now where we expect to hear about that every now and again, which 
Yeah, you know, I understand the gun argument that, like, we shouldn't give kids guns, you know, or we should be very careful about, you know, I understand the gun control argument that says, like, without guns being so readily available, fewer kids would die. I understand that argument. Even though I have reservation about the gun control argument, even though I'm not pro-gun control, I understand the argument. And I don't think it's a stupid argument to say that, hey, maybe we should make it harder for kids to kill like 15 to 30 people in one 10-minute period. I totally understand that argument, whether I agree with how it's applied or not. I totally understand it. But it's still not really getting at what the symptom of this is. Because even if kids couldn't get guns, what is causing them to commit suicide and want to kill each other? What is causing them to be so severely depressed and anxious? And why are all these measures that we're putting in place to stop that? Anti-bullying, therapy, medication, a climate of tolerance. Why isn't that causing this to go down? You know, that's the question. Christmas Eve, we're wondering about what's going on with teenagers. But, hey, we're all going to be dealing with this. I don't have any teenagers in my life right now. I don't have any teenagers in my life right now. But, you know, we're all going to be dealing with these peoples and these peoples in the next few years. You know, these are kids who we're going to be dealing with professionally. These are, you know, going to be adults soon. And some of them already are. So, I mean, even if you don't have children, and even if it isn't a pressing concern, you know, I'm really darn curious what's going to come of all this. Because a lot of what these people are experiencing is in the digital realm. A lot of their relationships, a lot of their communications, kids don't just hang out like they used to. They don't talk on the phone like they used to. You know, I'm not saying they need to. You know, I'm not saying everything needs to stay the exact same way it once was forever. But there is a lack of experience. I mean, more and more kids are losing their virginity later and later. Kids are less sexual. I mean, that's coincided with all this, too. They're finding out that, like, despite all of this sex positivity, kids are having way less sex. And it's a lot of posturing, it turns out. A lot of these kids who are like, oh, I'm... I'm this sexuality. And I, I was saying to a friend of mine, I was like, what's interesting about kids becoming more detached from traditional gender roles and taking on these identities like transgender, pansexuality, genderqueer, gender fluid. What's interesting about kids taking that on is the kids are actually way less sexual in general. And I wonder if that relates. Like the fact that kids have apparently less libido than ever. They're, they're not having the level of sex they once had. You know, how does that relate to the fact that they, they seem so detached from their actual traditional gender, their biological gender? You know, how does that relate? The fact that they don't seem to be nearly as motivated by sex, by sex, sex, by whooping. They don't seem to be nearly as motivated by whooping. How does that relate to what's going on? And it is interesting to me that, like, there's so much posturing about, like, sex positivity and sexual expression when the kids are having way less sex than ever. Like, they, like studies show, 
And, you know, I, I only trust studies so much, but this has been pretty consistent where studies show that like Zoomers are having way less sex than millennials who were having way less sex than Gen X, you know, and so it's sexuality has been on the decline. Fertility has been on the, de- the decline. Erectile dysfunction is up. No pun intended. You know, there are numerous, there's, there's a lot of anecdotal stuff about men not being able to get erections. And people have said it might be porn. They're like, oh, because all the boys have been looking at porn nonstop, their sexual needs have become greater, or, or rather their, uh, you know, what they need to get aroused, to whoop. The, the sort of stuff they need to be able to get themselves uh, whooping has... Um, it's become they become more fetishistic, like they need something more specific, more attractive, more out there, whatever. I don't know how true that is. That's a, that's a, a good theory. I don't know if that's the sole reason. You know, some people think it's dietary. Some people think it's environmental. But it is interesting that like a generation that has been more exposed to porn, that is more sex positive, that postures its own sex positivity more than any other. You think about all the people who are like, I'm sex positive. We need to normalize sexuality as part of our everyday experience. And meanwhile, those people aren't even having sex. It's all just posturing. And it makes sense to me, too, that like having sex in your face all the time would make it less desirable. For the same reason that that gay guy I was talking about the other day who does a podcast, like for the same reason that he was saying, like he found, you know, being gay more desirable when it was kind of secretive like he found it more you know attractive you know he doesn't like the white picket fence gay marriage sort of thing like that's not attractive to him and as a gay man he preferred like the more secretive like you know there's it's you know again it's like the reason why people cheat like some people like it's more arousing to them to have to like do these things behind closed doors and to not broadcast it and so it kind of makes sense to me that in an era where everybody is broadcasting sexuality all the time, that they would actually have less desire to do it. It's more about just signaling. Whereas when sex was something that you didn't really talk about as much, maybe there were repressive aspects that were negative, but when it was something you didn't really address publicly as much, that it would be something that you desire that much more in private. That makes sense to me. What we're seeing is like we hear all these anecdotal stories about guys can't get it up. Men can't even get it up. You know, and uh, it, it seems to that seems to be backed up by data as well. People are having are having less sex. They're detaching themselves from their biology. They're living in these digital realms. They're suicidal, depressed, anxious, at times homicidal. So it's all fucking crazy, man. <laughs> Merry Christmas. Uh, no, but it's it's of concern to me because it's like these people are going to be adults in the world we live in. And just the fact that they don't have certain fundamental experiences, they were already on the decline. And then now it's like 
coronavi and everything going on in our world has made those experiences even thinner. Like these, they are preparing people for the metaverse. They are preparing people to live in a digital realm, it feels like. And these kids are going to have no real motivation to resist it. Because they've already grown up like digital natives. They've already grown up with all of this stuff around them. And you know what? It might feel like a better alternative to them than real life. You know, Minecraft might feel like a better alternative. The metaverse might feel like a better alternative. I'll always resist that stuff, though. Even though I'm curious about new technology, I feel like you can always make something out of your material reality, your real core biological material reality. That's how I feel. And I feel that we should encourage young people to do that as well. Because I feel like we've given them every reason to drop away from that. We've given them every reason to just immerse themselves that much more in this digital realm to detach from who they actually are. But maybe we'll see a swing in the opposite direction. Just like suicide rates were very high in the 80s and early 90s and then dropped dramatically for about a, what, a 10, 15-year period. And then we saw them shoot back up again. You know, maybe there'll be another drop. I don't know that we'll ever find the exact reason for it. And I'm hesitant to blame any one thing. But um, I'm very curious to see what becomes of these people. I'm very curious to see what becomes of these people as they start actually having to interact with other adults who weren't raised like them. And maybe I'm making more out of this than I am, but... You know, I think this is backed up by both statistics as well as personal anecdotes. So, you know, if nothing else, you know, Columbine marked the end of the 90s. It marked the end of an entire millennia. And it paved the path for the world we're in now. Like, you can kind of see where... Patterns were being created then, even though that was a much different world. And for me, I look back on it as a time capsule. It kind of paved the way for the world we're living in now. We can see that some of those trends were just starting to play out among youth at the time. And that some of those problems have grown exponentially larger. But it's Christmas, and I'm going to spend the rest of the day thinking about better things than this. I just felt the need to comment. Merry Christmas. <laughs>